The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Before we go on to feelings, I'd like to point out the role of right effort in some of these body contemplations, particularly in steps three and four of breath mindfulness. You're training yourself to do something. It's not going to happen on its own that you are aware of the whole body as you breathe in and out. And it's not going to happen on its own that your breath, you're going to be able to calm bodily fabrication. These are things that you train yourself in. Now, this is important because it points to the fact that mindfulness is not just an exercise of accepting what's there. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that before the Buddha trained Rahula in breath meditation, he trained him in developing patience, developing equanimity. And a lot of times, when you, when you, especially when you read about mindfulness-based stress reduction or other types of mindfulness where they teach mindfulness simply being as accepting what's there, it, you can't take that as a whole path. I mean, the idea that we're suffering simply because we don't accept what's there is going on the assumption we're suffering because we're all neurotic. <laughs> And the Buddha went deeper than that, okay? What you want to do is first learn how to accept what's there to the extent that you can understand what's going on and then you can do something about it in a skillful way. Now, most of us, the problem is that we have some unskillful notions about how to get rid of anger, how to get rid of other unskillful states. And we see them arise and we just respond in an unskillful way. So as one first step, it's, it is necessary to stop and say, okay, I just want to watch these things as they're happening without getting riled up about them. But there comes a point, okay, where now you know that these things, this is the way they happen, then you have to work on what, what's a skillful way of dealing with them. So you're not just sitting there for 20 years watching your anger. <laughs> that would be a depressing thought. <laughs> there comes a point where you say, hey, I've had enough of this, I know this anger well enough, I know what to do about it. That's the point where the Buddha then wants you to move on to working with these things in skillful ways, trying to undercut the causes for the unskillful states and promote the causes for the skillful ones. So, as I said, under the breath meditation, steps three and four show that you have to play an active role. <clears throat> as I also noted under step, step um, the, <clears throat> the third um, exercise there about making yourself alert when looking, in to looking toward and looking away. This is even more clear in the Pali, where the word is uh, sampajana gada, is you make yourself alert. It's not going to happen on its own. You have to make yourself consciously alert. As we move into feelings, we'll find that there's, it's a little bit more implicit, how right effort plays a role. Okay, how does a monk remain focused on feelings in and of themselves? Let's change monk to meditator. There's the case where a meditator, when feeling a painful feeling, discerns that you discern that you are feeling a painful feeling. When feeling a pleasant feeling, you discern that you are feeling a pleasant feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, you discern that you are feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And that corresponds to the first step, where you're just learning how to watch feelings coming and going. Then, <clears throat> when feeling a painful feeling of the flesh, you discern that you are feeling a painful feeling of the flesh. Um, when feeling a painful feeling not of the flesh, you discern that you're feeling a painful feeling not of the flesh. 
and so on, with pleasant feelings and with neither pleasant nor painful feelings. Now, these feelings that are not of the flesh, they, they are related to the practice of jhana. Now, particularly pleasure of the flesh is the pleasure of the five senses. Pleasure not of the flesh is the pleasure of jhana. The pain of the five, the painful feeling of the flesh is pain felt in the five senses. A painful feeling not of the flesh is your sense of frustration that the practice isn't going as fast as you'd like it to. And then finally, neither pleasant nor plain are the same sort of thing. There's the pleasure, the feeling of equanimity that you can maintain in the face of pleasures or pains in the five senses. And then there's the neither pleasant, painful nor pleasant feeling that comes up that's not of the flesh, and that's the fourth jhana. Now those pleasures and neither pleasant nor painful feelings that are not of the flesh, those are things you have to develop. They're not just going to happen on their own. So implicit in here is that you are trying to develop the ability to experience these feelings not of the flesh. Now as for the pains of the flesh and the pains not of the flesh, there's a really interesting passage in Majjhima 137 when the Buddha is talking about emotions that you encounter. And there he uses a slightly different terminology. He, ta he talks about renunciant joy and renunciant and, excuse me, householder joy and renunciant joy, householder grief, renunciant grief, householder equanimity and, re and renunciant equanimity. And they pretty much map onto one another, these two different ways of talking about it. In that case, he says, uh, householder grief is when you don't get the things you want. You like, you, you're not getting the sights you want, you're not getting the sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations you want. That's householder grief. Renunciant grief is the grief, as I said, that comes when you, you know, realize you, you want to attain nirvana and you can't get there. You haven't gotten there yet. Now, it's interesting that the Buddha says, how do you, what's, what's the good replacement for a pain, householder pain? It's not householder pleasure, it's renunciant pain. <laughs> in other words, you say, okay, maybe I'm not getting what I want in terms of sight, smell, smell. Sight, sound, smells, taste, tackle, sensations. But even worse is the fact that my mind has not attained peace. Therefore, that's something I want to work on. Because focusing on that particular grief, then the Buddha says, that motivates you then to work for the pleasure that comes as you, be, as you make practice along the path. So this is very different from the attitude you sometimes hear, which is that you know if you have a goal of reaching nirvana, that goal is going to make you upset, so therefore don't have that goal. That doesn't get you anywhere. You ever see that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin is making a snowman? He's put the first big ball of snow and then there's the second big ball of snow. And then he says, I think I'm finished with my snowman. <laughs> and while he's talking about it, he says, you know, I've decided that the reason I'm miserable in life is because my aims are too high. <laughs> now I'm going to lower my aims <laughs> and be happy. That's not how the Buddha would teach. And besides Hobbes, by the way, at the end of the cartoon says, um, remind me to invest overseas. <laughs> so the Buddha says, okay, if you're feeling upset about the fact that you're not getting the, what he calls the household of pleasures you want, the best antidote for that is to remind yourself, well, there's something even more important that I'm not getting yet, and I'm not getting true peace of mind. I'm not getting release. That's something you want to focus on. So that becomes actually becomes a motivating factor. So it's actually a skillful kind of feeling to develop. So as you're going through these feelings and being mindful of them, it's not just a case that, well, whatever comes, comes, whatever goes, goes. That's one stage in the practice. And the next stage is, 
working on how to give rise to these feelings of the, not of the flesh, to replace the feelings of the flesh that have been overcoming the mind. Because those are the feelings that motivate you on the path. And then the passage ends with that same refrain about doing this either internally or externally. The phenomenon of origination, the phenomenon of origination and passing away. And then ultimately getting to the point where you have attained that level of the pleasure, of neither pleasure nor painful feeling that is not of the flesh. Then you can simply be there aware, okay, there, there are feelings for the sake of remembrance and knowledge, remaining independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That's on the verge of what they call non-fashioning, the point where fabrication disbands. Any questions about feelings? Or is it too late in the day? <laughs> yes? So, so when, when feelings are coming up and, and you're aware of them, are, are we still using the body and the breath as the frame of reference? You can. Could you maybe clarify a couple of different ways of doing that? You're saying you could switch the frame of reference? Right. You can, you could, you can you say it simply with the fact of the feelings as a frame of reference, or you can be aware of the breath as it relates to the feelings. Because all four of these, these foundations of mindful or frames of reference are very close to one another. It's very hard to be breathing and be sensitive to the breathing in the body without also being sensitive to the feelings in the mind or in the body. It's simply that you want to, if, if you want to maintain the breath as your basic frame of reference, then you'd be aware of the presence of feelings, you'd be aware of how those feelings influence the breath, how the breath influences those feelings. That's one way of being aware of the feelings. The other is okay, trying to notice okay, when you are able to actually give rise to a sense of pain that is not of the flesh, pleasure that is not of the flesh, or neither pleasure nor pain that is not of the flesh. That would become, that would become your primary focus. And would you, would you is it a, a skillful way of doing it to switch in the middle of a, of a meditation from one frame? As long as you're doing it consciously, yes. Uh -huh. As long as you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just wanted to clarify. So the pain that is not of the flesh would be the sense of disappointment that you haven't reached nirvana yet. Okay. Okay. So it's not so much when we're talking feeling. It's not so much like vedana, or it's moving into emotion. Okay. Especially in this, in that, in that, in that particular one. Yes. So you talked um, briefly about uh, the distinction between internally, externally, and internally and externally with regard to the body, my body, and then mm -hmm. just the awareness that other bodies are breathing. How does that relate to feeling? Just the same way. You realize that other people have pain, other people have pleasure, and they have feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. And that no, where, no matter where you go in this universe, you're not going to avoid it. Again, that helps to equalize. And particularly if, um, when you keep in mind the fact that the Buddha says, you know, at the, at the moment of death, 
it's awfully tempting that you see a, a pleasant world and you want to go there. He says, you've got to remind yourself at that point, okay, even in the pleasant world, there's going to be pain. No matter where you go, there's going to be pain. Because that helps to create a sense of dispassion for the idea of taking on any new identity. It also helps when people are sick and they're in pain and there's that question, well, why me? And the answer, of course, is, well, why not? Because everybody has pain at one point or another. It seems like one inherent trap in the internal-external contemplation would be mana, would be conceit. You know, I'm, I'm better, I'm less than. You know, that you could go down that pathway, uh, you know, in a, in a, you know uh, unskillfully, mm-hmm. that, oh, my feelings are better than that person's feelings. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we do. Uh-huh. I think a lot. There's a lot of envy. Well, especially it's it's you know the, sort of the romantic notion that you know my my feelings are more profound than other people's feelings. But but this is actually this is meant to be an equalizing. That no matter how profound your feelings may be, there are other people out there who have perfectly profound feelings, probably more profound than yours are, and they just have the good manners not to mention the fact. <laughs> How can one distinguish the true, neither painful nor pleasant feeling from the delusion of just not knowing? Okay, that's a very difficult one because most feelings of equanimity tend to in, contain an element of delusion. So what is one to do? What is, what is one to do? Okay, at that point you might say, well, I, I will focus on the ones that I know for sure, which are the pleasant feelings and the painful feelings. And just get very, very clear about that. Because even, I mean, even the, the subtle feelings of neither pleasure nor pain, there is a subtle form of pleasure in there until it becomes boring and then there's a subtle feeling of pain. So there's, there's always a subtle quality of one of the other extremes. So you want to look, at, look for that. Mm-hmm. Question back here. There can also be um, feelings not of the flesh, um, that are not jhana-related, mm-hmm. um, such as intellectual pleasure, pain. It's funny, the Buddha, the, Buddha doesn't inclu- the, the Buddha doesn't include those intellectual pleasures as not of the flesh. He's specifically talking about the, the, the pleasures and feelings of economy that come with jhana. It's, the word here, it's, it's a difficult word to translate. It's the word amisa and nirdamisa. And amisa can mean meat, it can mean bait, um, it can mean flesh. So we're not talking about abstract as opposed to fleshly feelings, but it's more feelings that have an intellectual pleasures can also have a certain amount of bait to them. But, but such feelings also arise. They arise, and yes. you mm-hmm. need to be mindful of them as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to mind. And how do you remain focused on the mind in and of itself? Here again, the first the first paragraph is basically watching states of mind as they come and go. And the three big ones are passion, aversion, and delusion. 
So there's a case where a monk, okay, there's a case where when the mind has passion, you discern that the mind has passion. When the mind is without passion, you discern that the mind is without passion. When the mind has aversion, you discern that the mind has aversion. When it's without aversion, you discern that it's without aversion. When it has delusion, or has without delusion, you discern those facts. Okay, now the next list here begins to, there's a, there's a sense of development as the categories develop that, as to which you are analyzing your mind. Okay, when the mind is constricted, that usually a mind, that's a mind suffering from the, um, the hindrances of sloth, torpor, that crowd. And then when the mind is scattered, it's, it, that can be sensual desire, ill will, restlessness and anxiety and, and uncertainty. Okay, in those cases, you've got the two extremes of the mind having too little energy or too much energy. And then when the mind is enlarged, when the mind is not enlarged, you discern those facts. Now, enlarged here means a mind in a state of concentration, as we were describing earlier. When you fill the whole body with your awareness, you fill the, sen the, the body with a sense of ease or pleasure. When the mind is surpassed or when the mind is unsurpassed, that's the next pair. Surpassed here means that you've had a better mental state than this one. When the mind is unsurpassed, you realize, okay, this is the best the mind has ever gotten. Then you also discern whether the mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. And you discern whether it is released or not released. Now the word release here can have many levels of meaning. In the first case it would be Release from the hindrances, as to when, as when you get into the first jhana. Then it could be release from directed thought and evaluation as you go into the second jhana. And then so on up through the jhanas as you release it from various factors of jhana as you get into more refined states. And then ultimately release, of course, could mean the release that comes from insight that leads to full liberation. So again, here the 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 active the active role of discernment is only uh, active role of effort is only implicit it's explicit in other suttas and I'll give you a reading here this is from Anguttara 10:51 if on examination you know I usually remain covetous with thoughts of ill will overcome by sloth and drowsiness restless uncertain angry with soiled thoughts that's an interesting idea soiled thoughts with my body worked up lazy or unconcentrated then you should put forth extra desire, effort, diligence, endeavor, relentlessness, mindfulness, and alertness for the abandoning of those very same evil, unskillful qualities. Just as when a person whose turban or head was on fire would put forth extra desire, effort, diligence, endeavor, earnestness, mindfulness, and alertness to put out the fire on your turban or head, in the same way, you should put, out extra for, put forth extra desire, effort, diligence, endeavor, relentlessness, mindfulness, and alertness for the abandoning of those very same evil, unskillful qualities. But if on examination you know, I usually remain uncovetous, without thoughts of ill will, free of sloth and drowsiness, not restless, gone beyond uncertainty, not angry, with unsoiled thoughts, with my body unaroused, with persistence aroused and concentrated, then your duty is to make an effort in establishing those very same qualities to a higher degree for the ending of the affluence. So you don't just sit there watching mind states coming and going. And once you're used to watching them, then the next step is how do you get rid of the unskillful ones and how do you further develop the skillful ones? So there's an element of right effort that's implicit in the process of 
developing the mind as a frame of reference. Okay, then we move on to mental qualities. Did you have any questions about those mind states? Yes, in the back. Um, similar question uh, that we asked for feelings. Um, watching your ignorance, um, how do you do that? How do you watch your ignorance? Yeah, how are you aware of your... Um, the best way to be aware of your ignorance is to act on it and see what happens as a result. <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously. <laughs> That's the only way you're going to learn. So, okay, let's give it a try. I'm going to act on this and see what happens. Yeah, well, I was more thinking during meditation, mm -hmm. you know, sort of when, you're, you know, when you're not really, um, you're not really thinking anything, but you know, are you being ignorant or... That's when you want to pose the question, is there any stress in here? And that's a similar sort of thing. What am I doing that's causing stress that I'm not noticing? And the best way to test that is then watch for a, a rise or fall in the level of stress, even very subtle comings and goings of stress. And as soon as more stress comes, then the question is, what did I just do? We're talking mental stress here. And then as the level of mental stress goes down, ask, okay, what did I just do? And that's how you start digging away at your ignorance. Mm -hmm. else? Okay, let's move on to mental qualities. Okay, there are five ways of looking at mental qualities, or five frameworks for using this particular frame of reference. And you notice that in three of them, it's very explicit about trying to get rid of unskillful ones and encourage skillful ones. First one is five hindrances. How do you remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances? There's a case where there being sensual desire present within, you discern that there is sensual desire present within me. Here, notice again the internal dialogue going on. Or there being no sensual desire present within, you discern there is no sensual desire present within me. You discern how there is the arising of unarisen sensual desire, and you discern how there is the abandoning of sensual desire once it has arisen. And then you discern how there is no further appearance in the future of sensual desire that has been abandoned. In other words, you get to the point where you realize it's not going to come back. And then similarly with the remaining hindrances, ill will, sloth and drowsiness, restlessness, anxiety, and uncertainty. So there are several things that are important here. One, you are, first, you're, again, you're watching these things simply as they come and go, and then you begin to realize, okay, why do they come, why do they go, so that you ultimately get to the point where once you've abandoned it, it's not going to come back. That, that is going to require a certain amount of effort and analysis. It's not just sitting there watching. The second exercise is being focused on mental qualities in and themselves with reference to the five clinging aggregates. 
And how do you do that? There's a case where you discern. Such is form, such is origination, such is disappearance. Such is feeling, such is perception, such is our fabrications, such is consciousness, such its origination, and such its disappearance. Now this kind of insight is the kind of insight that can come only when the mind is in deep concentration. Particularly when you're looking at the origination, i.e. what causes a particular sense of form to arise and pass away. What causes a particular feeling or perception, fabrication, or act of consciousness to arise and pass away? And that's going to require strong concentration. Because what it comes down to, this analysis of the five hindrances is a useful analysis at the beginning of your concentration practice or your mindfulness practice. You're sitting down, you're trying to get the mind settled down, you've got to realize, okay, there are hindrances in here. And if I don't know which hindrances, if I'm not clear on which hindrance is there, I can't really deal with it. So this is a frame of reference you might want to use as you're sitting down to practice. Now if you find that, okay, things are going well, then you move on to the next step, which is to get the mind into concentration. And that would be exercise number four, as you're trying to develop the factors for awakening. Do you mind if we skip around a bit? This is on page 11. You remain f focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the seven factors for awakening. How do you do that? There's a case where there being mindfulness as a factor of awakening present within. You discern that mindfulness as a factor for awakening is present within me. Or there being no mindfulness, you discern that there is no mindfulness. <laughs> it can be done. You discern how there is the arising of unarisen mindfulness. So you can see how you can give rise to it. That right there requires intention and effort. And you discern how there is the culmination of the development of mindfulness as a factor for awakening once it has arisen. Again, in other words, you bring it as far as it can go. And this holds true for all the others. Analysis of qualities, persistence, rapture, serenity, concentration, and equanimity. So as you've gotten past the five hindrances, your next step is to, we're actually in the process of overcoming the five hindrances, you're trying to develop the factors for awakening. So these are the two frames of reference that you would use as you're getting as you're getting the mind settled in to meditate. And there's actually one version of the Satipatthana Sutta. It's in another it's in another canon called the Sarvastivadin Canon, which, when it discusses mental qualities, discusses just those two topics: the five hindrances and the seven factors for awakening. Now the third exercise is. I would say it's an exercise that you use as you're going around throughout the day. This is a basic exercise that ex would accompany sense restraint. How do you remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the sixfold internal and external sense media? There's the case where you discern the eye, you discern forms, you discern the fetter that arises dependent on both. Okay, you see that the fetter here would be um, craving and passion. You discern how there is the arising of an unarisen fetter. You discern how there is the abandoning of a fetter once it has arisen. You discern how there is no further appearance in the future of a fetter that has been abandoned. Okay, this follows pretty much the same pattern as the hindrances. But it's a useful it's a useful frame of reference to use as you're going throughout the day. Walking down the street, dealing with other people. And you've got to keep your mind out for 
when does passion arise from the way I look at things? When does passion arise from the way I listen to things? When does anger or aversion arise from these things? To what extent is, are my passions and aversion controlling the way I look, controlling the way I listen, and so on down through the senses? And then finally, the fifth exercise is remaining focused on mental qualities in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Okay. You discern that, as it has come to be, that this is stress. You discern, as it has come to be, this is the origination of stress, this is the cessation of stress, and this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. Okay. This analysis is usually best, once, best done once the mind is in solid concentration. You begin to analyze even that state of concentration. Okay, there's stress in here. And what in here is causing the stress? And what can I do to alleviate that stress? So you've got five different frameworks here under mental qualities. As I said earlier, when you're sitting down to concentrate, the issue of the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening is most important. As you get deeper into concentration, you're going to start analyzing things in terms of the five clinging aggregates and the four noble truths. And it's the, the framework for the sixfold internal and external sense media. That's for times as you go through the day, not in formal meditation. Watching over your mind and the way you engage the world through your senses. Any questions on those five? Five exercises. I'm going to feel real stupid asking this, but suddenly I don't know what the mental qualities are. Okay, they are qualities of mind that are going to be relevant for either being skillful or unskillful. As I said earlier, it's like thinking about the mind. When you're doing the third, third establishing of mindfulness, it's thinking about the state of the mind as a whole. And these are different qualities within the mind, like different members of the committee. Reading all these frames brings to mind another frame that I've heard um, and wanted to find out where it fits, which is to observe uh, that there are essentially two things to observe. There's the object and there's the knowing of the object. That kind of practice, how is it represented here? That would be under the mind, okay. when the mind is released from its identification with the object. Okay, so that would be part of observing whether or not the mind is released? Right. I see. Do you distinguish between mindfulness practice and insight practice? Yes. What is the distinction? The distinction is when you start analyzing things in terms of the three characteristics. Which I see are not listed here. Right, okay. But that, that they would, however, come under... Um, Analyzing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. 
Where is there stress? Okay. Well, it at least includes um, anicca very clearly. There's always the origin and the passing away, but mm-hmm. I don't see reference. Well, stress then is the dukkha, but I don't see anatta. Well, when, once, once you start seeing things arising and passing away, then the following perception is of their stressfulness, and then the following perception after stressfulness is the perception of not-self. That the Buddha wants, this is how he wants you to pursue those perceptions. Mm-hmm. And just being mindful does not guarantee insight. Just as being concentrated doesn't guarantee insight. Mm-hmm. I was reading this book recently on, on mindfulness, and the author was going over again and again and again that concentration in and of itself does not lead to awakening. Concentration in and of itself does not lead to awakening. And But he neglected to say mindfulness in and of itself does not lead to awakening. You can be very mindful and not know a damn, well, not know a thing, but, um, because <laughs> there is wrong mindfulness. Yeah. You have to watch out. And even right mindfulness, it can take a long time to develop to the point where you're getting the insights that actually cut through your defilements. Anything else? Yes. Mr. Mike. Let's send it over here. Where's the other mic, by the way? I have this question about uh, the, the the difference between the mind and the heart. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, how do you differentiate? Are they the same? Or this may be very in, most, in most Buddhist languages, there's a very huge overlap between the use of the word mind and the use of the word heart. Um, they talk about jitta, in this case, as having passion, which, is, which sounds like a quality of the heart. They talk about developing a jitta of metta, a jitta of garana, which again qualities of the heart, and also. But there are other places where they discuss it more in the framework, in what we would term as mind. And so it's the same word in Pali that they use, and in many other languages um, like Thai and Tibetan, there's a huge overlap between mind and heart. Partly because I think, from the Buddhist point of view, there is no clear distinction between your thoughts and your emotions. Because every thought is going to have an emotional component, and every emotional, every emotion is going to have a thought involved. And it's just a question of which is more predominant. Especially when you remember, as I said earlier, that your experience of the world is going to be colored by your fabrications, the way you fabricate your thoughts, the way you fabricate your anticipations of things. Which is. There's an element of thought there. There's also an element of desire, kind of a heart quality that goes into that. In fact, you can take those three forms of fabrication and look at them as basically being the components of an emotion. There's the way you breathe. It's going to be affected by the emotion. There's the way you... And and which will also affect the emotion. Then there's the thoughts you have, the way you evaluate the situation, the basic perception you have in mind, the feelings feeling tones you have around that. When you put all those things together, you've got an emotion. So there's no clear distinction between thought and, or heart and mind. So 
continue on that. Uh, so when feelings arises, just that arises from, you may have touched on this, but I always thought that when we talk about heart, heart is the physical heart mm-hmm. the body has. Since mm-hmm. it's not really the physical heart, then we talk about <coughs> Right. Well, the feeling can here either be a physical feeling or a mental feeling. A pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. It covers both. The word covers both. There's a question over here. <clears throat> Our little Sangha has a little confused between um, awareness and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Can you clarify that a little? Okay, bit? well, that's, um, there's a hu- there should be a huge distinction between the two. Mindfulness is the ability to keep something in mind. And awareness is, if you're using any of the terms we've been talking about today, it's closer to alertness. But usually what we mean when we talk about just kind of bare awareness, we just, it's consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in your reading of this, um, can any of these practices lead to the goal, which is Nibbana? And are there examples in the canon where someone gets enlightened by a particular one, let's say the charnel ground contemplations, or do all of these have to be cultivated simultaneously? No, it's, it's, it's um, different ones will work with different people. And there's one um, passage in the canon where this monk goes to see different monks and ask them, well, what is it you have to contemplate in order to gain awakening? And one says you have to contemplate the five aggregates, and the other one says you have to contemplate the sixth sense media. Another one says you have to contemplate the, the basic properties. Another one says you have to contemplate the body, and someone else says you have to contemplate dependent core rising. And he gets very frustrated. And so he goes to see the Buddha. And the Buddha says, there, apparently there was a tree that was called the riddle tree, because it had such, it appeared so differently in different seasons. Like in, in the, when it's blooming, there, was, there are no leaves. I think it's the coral tree is what they're talking about. When, when, the, when the flowers are blooming, there are no leaves. And when the leaves are no flowers, and then sometimes there's neither leaves nor flowers on the tree. And so and if someone going to describe it at any one particular time would say, well, this tree has no leaves or flowers. And someone said, well, no, no, it has leaves. Of course it has leaves. Someone else says, no, it doesn't have any leaves, but it has flowers. And of course, it depends on when you're looking at it. And in the same way, it's what... What, whatever particular topic you happen to be contemplating when that final insight hit, that's going to be the one that you're going to be focusing on as the sort of the primary cause for awakening. But from the Buddha's point of view, you could be focusing on any of these and it could lead to, lead to awakening. Because what inevitably happens is you're working with the body, say, as your frame of reference. You can't avoid dealing with the hindrances, dealing with the factors for awakening dealing with looking things and say in terms of the aggregates or the sense media. Isn't there a passage in Anguttara Nikaya number one um, that you can't achieve, achieve enlightenment without uh, mindfulness of the body? That is not possible. Right. So that particular one is essential. That's essential, yeah. But maybe two isn't, for example. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to avoid any of these. If you're going to be focused, say, on your breath, it's hard to avoid awareness of feelings and mind states and mental qualities. Dr. John Lee talks about basically when you get the mind really settled in the breath, you've got all four frames of reference right there. 
So you brought them all four into one, and so you're right there in the midst of right mindfulness. You do that. Other descriptions can the arahants uh, do continue to practice of the four frames of reference? Yes, they do, but they don't do it for any further awakening. They do because it's a nice place to hang out. <laughs> Where else would you hang out? <laughs> Question back there. I just wanted to say thank you for coming, and you've been a great inspiration for me. Mm-hmm. Um, some of this, uh, I guess my question is, you, you alluded to the fact that um, there's a, these things arrive together, mm-hmm. feeling the bodily sensation, mind. And initially, um, just for instance, I've noticed with my own practice that which is relatively young, but there's a, a such a uh, sort of quantum vibe or a wave feeling between initial feeling and my body, <clears throat> so that I'm sitting here and I notice this knee pain, and I, I guess I want to put this outside of the monkey mind or papancha, that is, oh, my knee hurts. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of my football injury from XYZ. Mm-hmm. And I remember this girl that I used to, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. leaving, your, <laughs> leaving your concentration because your knee hurts, right, yeah. out there. But, uh, and then, by contrast, this is broken up into these five, mm-hmm. uh, you know, body, feelings, mind, etc. So I'm wondering if part of the practice is to say, because what you could do, and what I've done is say, whether it's feeling or it's physical, it is causing me suffering. Mm-hmm. So, and then sort of to jump to the fifth one of mine and go into the Four Noble Truths as the basis from where to mm-hmm. sort of understand something I don't understand already. And then I've jumped. But it seems like a lot of this requires much more subtle levels of um, or maturity in your practice mm-hmm. to be able to discern. Is part of this taking the time to say, that's knee pain, that's the reaction to the knee pain, and separating these things out. Is that part of this work, is to say, I know, I, is to be able to discern what's what? Exactly. Well, you're, you're working on several levels here. Um, one is, when you apply the Four Noble Truths at the beginning, it's going to be kind of a rough application, but still it's useful. I mean, those, those, those teachings are applicable all the time. And then... As you try to further understand, the next question is, okay, what is the duty appropriate to that particular noble truth? Which might be, okay, to comprehend it, if it's pain. That means that that's when you start going, okay, let's really watch this carefully. What exactly is the the pain itself? What is my experience of the body? And what is, what are my mental, you know, and and then you just, when you talk about the mental reactions, then you start dividing that up. Okay, what's the perception? What's the fabrication? You start dividing up in those terms. So that is that is a real piece of this directed thought and evaluation is right. to is to pick this stuff apart. Right. right. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've encountered, and I, I don't know, I may be making it up, but I've encountered this a number of times. Um, I am suffering greatly over this particular thought, mm-hmm. uh, and then it gets combined with uh, toe pain or something like that, mm-hmm. and I stick right there. 
-hmm. And something in me says, something in you likes this suffering. I don't know. It's clearly painful, and I really believe outwardly I'd like for it to go away. Mm -hmm. And yet, we return, and I return, and return. Mm -hmm. And there's something unknown to me there. There's there's got to be something in there that I'm enjoying. I'm getting some kind of sustenance from this suffering. Right, right. And that's very difficult to pick apart. Well, the easiest way to pick it apart is say, okay, I'm not going to think, and see which part of your mind objects. I'm just not going to think about this. And say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and why? Give me a reason. And it's going to refuse to give you a reason for a while. But after all, you begin to see you know, that there's something in you that likes to, you know, maybe may kind of romanticizing of the pain. Um, it, who knows? You've got, you've got to explore it for yourself. But the best way to, I mean, if, if, it's, going to, if it's going to be sneaky about why it likes to be there, you have to be sneaky about, okay, I'm not going to play along with you until you give me a good reason. And then, then you'll find out that there's a certain part of your internal drama or your internal narrative that feeds on these things. And then you find that you say, this is pretty miserable food. Can I find something better to feed on? Yeah. It does seem like a lot of this is geared towards uh, running it through a, a course to where you come to the, I'm tired of that. Yeah, I'd yeah, like to yeah. have it go away. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, one other quick sure. question. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, I notice here in the conclusion that it says, if you practice this for seven years, mm-hmm. then you may X, Y, Z. But there seems to be something within the contemplation of all five of these elements that could happen over a course of time or within one meditation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can't run the gamut, but is there some kind of, um, I guess effort is the right word other than pressure, but to, to make sure that you are somewhere in these five realms during a meditation? I mean, in other words, are you pushing yourself to... Farther than, you know, this is intellectual in a way, on paper, mm-hmm. and it's so different when you're experiencing it. Um, but is, should there be effort made in moving in one direction or the other? I would say first just get, learn how to get settled with the breath, get settled with the body. And whatever issues come up that interfere with being settled with the body, you're going to run into feelings, you're going to run into mental qualities, you're going to run into mind states. Deal with those as they relate to the body as they relate to the breath. With your main emphasis being, I've got to get the mind as still as possible, but alert and mindful. And then as you get better and better, that your your sensitivity to what really means still being still is going to get more and more refined until the stillness goes beyond concentration. And it gets you into concentration, then you pursue it even further. That's what gets you beyond concentration. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Ajahn, I've uh, read and been inspired by almost all of your books. Uh, almost? <laughs> <laughs> I should say, I've been inspired by all of I've read all the <laughs> And I've read... Uh, Mind like fire unbound, mm-hmm. and I guess um, upon release, uh, the still, still mind 
uh, fruition and so on. It seems that there's not a lot of what do you do after. Uh, I guess we do trust that it itself is a place to hang out and that that, that is still where everything uh, is. It's actually the expression, right? So there's nothing, there's nothing further. But I haven't seen anything else that talks about, okay, so what do you do? What's next? What do you do after you? Is it there or not? What, what, do you, what do you recommend? Is there any further instructions? And the mind gets really still? Or is it just really just trust? Okay, you've got to, one, trust that the Buddha knew what he was talking about. But two, then, the next question, okay, is this stillness good enough? And for a while it's going to be really good. And then after a while you say, ah, something's still not quite right. And then you want to explore that, okay, why is it not quite right? Because it's not totally still. It's not totally gratifying. And so then you dig in, okay, what in here is still disturbing this? And then you find might might be a slight little bit of stress or a slight little bit of disturbance, and you just start pursuing that. Okay, what am I doing that's contributing to that? But as to how long it's going to take, it's like, you know, suppose you, worst comes to worst, you know, society collapses and you decide you're going to be a hunter. And so you go out and you know, you know that there are rabbits down around by the creek down there. But so you get yourself, you get all your equipment ready and everything, you go down there and you're very, very still. Now can you ask the rabbit to come by by 2 p.m. so you can have dinner by 6 p.m.? No. You know. You just have to sit there and wait for the rabbits to come. Now you put, your, you put yourself in a spot where you know rabbits are likely to come, and you've got your weapons all ready and you're alert. So if there's the slightest rustling in the bushes, you shoot at it, right? Hopefully you can recognize rustlings of rabbits from rustlings of people and that kind of thing. But you get to, re you get to recognize what does a rustling rabbit sound like, okay? And so that's what you're working for. And when you cut the rabbit, and you cook the rabbit, and you had the rabbit, hmm. and then you sit in, and then do you sit with the fullness of the rabbit, or is there anything else? Well, in this analogy, the rabbit stands for awakening. So, <laughs> 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 yeah. But then, okay, but if it really is a good rabbit, then you wouldn't have to eat any more rabbits anymore. Okay. There wouldn't then be hung there won't be hunger for rabbits. This is where the analogy breaks down. <laughs> I guess my question was, okay, so what's next? There won't be any what's next, because you're outside of a space and time. Outside of space and time, there's no what's next. Yeah. As far as, as the arhat who still is alive and experienced space and time, basically, okay, whatever karma you have to deal with, you deal with it, but then when that's done, you're done. Okay. And then finally, the conclusion talks about if you really are serious about practicing, seven days should be enough. <laughs> we don't have to go any further on that one, okay? <laughs> okay, that covers the topic of mindfulness. Now, as you can no as you notice, we've done a lot about concentration already in the course of discussing mindfulness. So the remaining passages are to tie up some loose ends. Passage 18. 
is a description of the point where the Buddha himself reflects after his period of austerities. Okay, okay the austerities aren't working. And you have to th you have to really admire him because you know someone who's gone through six years of austerities. What do you think keeps you going for six years, starving yourself, tormenting yourself? If not pride, I can do something nobody else can do. And so he does it for six years, and it's not working. And he's willing to abandon that pride. That takes a lot. So he says, I thought, I recall once when my father, the Sakin, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And by the way, those people who try to tell you that the Buddha's father was a king have trouble <laughs> explaining this one when my father was working. Um, then, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities, I ended and remained in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born of seclusion accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Could that be the path to awakening? Then there was the consciousness following on being mindful. That is the path to awakening. So I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. So that was the point where he overcame his fear of pleasure. Because up to that point, he equated all pleasure with sensuality. Now he realized, okay, there is a kind of pleasure that is not tied up with sensuality. There's nothing blameworthy about it. But then the next step, of course, he realized that he couldn't attain that level of concentration without eating. So he went back to eating again. Sometimes people raise the question, well, if the Buddha had practiced the dimension of nothingness and neither perception and non-perception before he went through the austerities, why did he have to go back and remember the first jhana? And the answer is that it is possible to attain those dimensions without going through the four jhanas. There's, this, there's a description of this in Majjhima 106, which is in passage 36, which we'll be looking at towards the end of the day. And there's also another description in Majjhima 137 about attaining those, um, attaining those states without going through the four jhanas. So it is possible that he, you know, ever since that time when he was a kid, he hadn't gone through the four jhanas. And this was a recollection. Okay. Passages 19 and 20 define those terms about sensuality and unskillful mental qualities. These we've already talked about. Passage 21 I wanted to include because it was included in a, in a passage where someone was arguing that right concentration does not have to mean jhana. And it's, he, the, the, the quote was just that first paragraph. Now, what monks is noble right concentration with its supports and requisite conditions? Any singleness of mind equipped with these seven factors, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness, is called noble right concentration with its supports and requisite conditions. And they say, well, there's no mention of jhana in there, so maybe right concentration doesn't have to be jhana. Well, there are two things to keep in mind. One is when they say that First jhana is, comes about when the mind is free from unskillful mental qualities. Those unskillful mental qualities are the seven wrong forms of those factors of the path. So when you do have those seven factors of the path, okay, you pretty much got the mind ready for jhana. And then secondly, 
the definition of right resolve in this particular passage is different from the normal ref the normal definition. And what is the right resolve that has fermentation, sides with merit, and results in acquisitions? Resolve for renunciation, i.e., resolve for sensuality. Renunciation of sensuality, resolve for freedom of ill will, and resolve for harmlessness. And what is the right resolve that is without fermentations, transcendent, a factor of the path? And look at these factors. These are these are factors of the first jhana: thinking, directed thinking, resolve, mental fixity, mental transfiction, focused awareness, and verbal fabrications. In one developing the noble path, whose mind is noble, whose mind is without effluence, who is fully possessed of the noble path. So got right resolve has the factors of jhana right in there, as it's defined in that passage. So again, it would indicate that right mind, right, that jhana is right concentration, which is why I said it's required for awakening. Passage 22 gives some definitions of the formless jhanas. These states are not described as jhana in the canon. They're described as applications of the fourth jhana. Once you've got the equanimity of the fourth jhana, you can apply it to the perception of infinite space, the perception of infinite consciousness, the perception there is nothing, or to the dimension of neither perception or non-perception. And for practical purposes, the first one is the most interesting. There's the case where a monk, a meditator, with a complete transcending of perceptions of form, with the disappearance of perceptions of resistance and not heeding perceptions of diversity, we'll go over those terms in a minute, perceiving infinite space and as remains in the dimension of the infinitude of space. Okay, we mentioned earlier that when the in and out breathing stops, the sense of the boundary of the body begins to dissolve. And it's at this point where you can drop the perception of form. And there's no perception of resistance, and you're not really paying attention. As I say, perceptions of diversity means you're not paying attention to the input of the senses. Now, in some cases, some people getting that this actually do, you know, their ears go, ears go deaf, they don't see anything. Other people, there is, you do sense that there is a world outside you, but you're not really paying much attention to it. You're paying more attention just to that perception of space. Um, in a kind of visceral way, you can describe it as as that sense of the boundary of the body begins to disappear, your body becomes a sense of just little sensation dots. Little feelings, like a kind of a cloud of feelings. And then you begin to notice that between the dots there's space. And you say, why, why focus on the dots? Why don't I focus on the space? You focus on that sense of space and you realize there is no limit to that space. The, bound, the body doesn't form a boundary. That's how you get into the dimension of the infinitude of space. As for the next step, okay, once you've really solidified that perception of infinite space, then you can ask the question, well, what is aware of that space? And that takes you to the in perception of the infinitude of consciousness. Infinitude means simply that there is no clear boundary to it. Now, that's, that's as far as the perception of oneness will go. 
as the Buddha said, the highest form of non-duality is this perception of the infinitude of consciousness. There's a strong sense of oneness. As you let go of that sense of oneness, what's left? Nothing. That moves you into the dimension of nothingness. The perception is that, just there is nothing. So that perception of the oneness of the mind with its object, that lasts from the second jhana up through the infinitude of consciousness. And then you drop that perception of oneness and there's just nothing. And then you drop that perception and you're a state of mind that you recognize but you don't have a clear perception for it. So it's the state of neither perception or non-perception. It's a very subtle, very still state of mind. Now those are some of the things that you can do with jhana. You can play. Any questions about those formless? Oh, lots of hands. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, yeah, these these four formless meditations. It sounds like fun, but I don't know what that doesn't describe the benefit of. Do you have to do these things? You don't have to, no. Right. Yeah, I read that you know in Buddha's Parinibbana, he went through the four jhanas, but he didn't do this. Thing. He did these too. Yes. Yeah. He went all the way up to the fourth jhana, and then all the way up through the formless perceptions to the cessation of perception of feeling. Then he came back down, kind of going up the scale, going down the scale. And then he returned to the fourth jhana and left just after coming out of the fourth jhana. There's an implication that he, you know, he gained his awakening in the fourth jhana. So maybe he just wanted to revisit old territory. What? And to show, you know, here he's dying, but he can still do this. Kind of one last flourish. He's gone. Okay. It's a question over here. What is the re- relationship between this and, and the deathless? Okay, this still is willed. It's fabricated. You will yourself into that. There's a perception that holds you there. And so the, the deathless is not willed, it's not fabricated, and there's no... Active, none of the five aggregates appear in the deathless. Can you define the deathless? <laughs> <laughs> or give us a close approximation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, in 20 words or less. Okay, okay. There's no. Okay, there's no fabrication going on. At that point, it's experienced because you've dropped your fabrication in the present moment. All karmic input in the present moment, all intentions in the present moment have stopped at that point. Even the intention to stop has stopped. It's just total non-fabrication. In that state, uh, as the Buddha said, there is no darkness, there is no time, and there's no space. I mean, it's it's kind of outside of the dimensions of time and space. Do you want any further? Thank you. Anything else? The difficulty here with these four states is to actually see where the fabrication is because it's so subtle. I've always been intrigued by the Parnirvana and how the Buddha went mm-hmm. up to the fourth and down the scale and mm-hmm. and settled on the on the fourth. Mm-hmm. And, what do you f- and I thought, what well, that's kind of strange that he actually went back up and then settled on the fourth because mm-hmm. I would have thought that on Pranayapana, he would have gone 
going out the top. Yeah. Not return, but I thought whether he return is there something specific? What do you think? Well, you remember, as I said, the fourth John is where he came his awakening. And I know what John Lee tends to talk about the fourth John as being the most um, reliable of the states. It's the strongest. He, he talks about the four jhanas as being basically working and gaining a salary. And the four foremost jhanas are living off of your um, retirement fund. In other words, you're living off of what you've done before, but it's going to run out if you don't go back and do some work. So he would always emphasize that you really want to emphasize the fourth jhana. And once you've mastered the different stages, that's the one where you want to spend most time. Anything else? Yes. I'm just wondering, is it safe to practice this deep concentration alone? Or do you need a kind of experienced teacher to be by your side? Well, as long as you know that they're not nirvana, you're okay. But are there examples of people going into these states and make, make some mistakes somehow? Just not, I mean, the, when you're talking about dangers of concentration, the main danger of concentration is one, believing you've attained awakening when you haven't. Two, when you gain visions, you start believing the visions. Three, you decide you're going to leave your body and you go out. That's where most of the dangers come in concentration. So as long as you're in the body, and, and with these formless states, you could go back to the perception of body at any time. It's not like pulling out of your body and becoming one of those astral bodies kind of floating around. That's dangerous. Because sometimes people have trouble getting back in. <laughs> Sounds like you should have a teacher by your side. Yeah. These, these are pretty safe, especially if you've been working with the breath. The breath is the safest of the meditations. But as long as you tell, if you're working alone, you just say, stay away from, stay away from visions. Don't make any assumptions about your attainments. And don't leave your body. <laughs> okay. There was a question back here. If someone has mastered the fourth jhana, how does one incline the mind from there to nibbana? Okay, this, again, you ask the question, where is there stress in here? And we'll, we'll be getting into this a little bit later. Where is the stress and, what, and what's causing the stress? And letting go. Letting go of the cause. So you're applying the four, the four noble truths to your attainment. And what happens, I mean, it can either, will either take you to nirvana or it will take you to the infinitude of space. And so if you get to the infinitude of space, then you, you know, establish yourself there and then ask the question again. Someplace in here, it's going to, you're going to hit the jackpot, but <laughs> there's no guarantee that... Even the letting go it is a kind of holding on, the trying to let... Well, this, this is where it gets paradoxical, and it's, it's a kind of letting go where you realize that no matter what I do, even if I let go, it's going to be stressful. And so that's the point where your mind is stymied, and at that point of where it's being stymied, there, some people you know, finally get to the point, okay, there's that moment where there's this balance in the mind, what they call a moment of non-fashioning, where there's no intention one way or the other. And that's what allows for the opening. Thank you. Why in the back? 
I've heard the description of the, the Buddhas going through all the jhanas up to the eight and down to the four as he's about to die. And I'm wondering, how, how do we know that? Anuruta was following him. Who was? Anuruta. Presumably in some astral... I mean, he was following him? He was, well, he was watching his mind. He was watching his... Anuruta could read minds. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Buddha was showing off for those who could see, you know. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, Anandev thought that when the Buddha entered the cessation of perception of feeling, he said, "Oh my gosh, he's dead." And Anuruta said, "No, he's in the cessation of perception of feeling. He'll come out." And then he came out. Do you want to break for a short break for a few minutes?